If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Zechariah. Let's go to chapter 13. We want to look this morning at Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. This morning is part two. Last week, we began with part one. And so, as I mentioned before I prayed, God has really just been stirring my heart. Zechariah has been coming to mind for me as, as a pastor teacher for many, many weeks now. And so when the Lord continues to speak to me, minister to me, push on my heart, I have to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. And so we're going to take that sidetrack of the book of Acts. We'll get back into it. If you know me here at Calvary Chapel, the pastor, and what we do at most Calvary chapels, and that is to teach the Word, and we go from Genesis to Revelation, and so right now, we have already done the Gospel of John. It's complete. In fact, it's on the radio right now. And now we're in the book of Acts. And I really don't like to change midstream. But I just saw the importance of looking at Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, we began with this portion of Scripture last week. The Holy Spirit has Zechariah, the, the prophet of God, to write. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory uh, to the nations which plunder you. Speaking to Israel. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And we shared last week. We make the reference to the Southwest here. Uh, we hear the, the term, don't mess with Texas. Well, I want to bring it to the biblical stance. Don't mess with Israel, and don't mess with the Jews, and don't mess with Jerusalem. The Bible says they're, they're the apple of God's eye. And yet we see, as we shared last week, everybody has a, an idea we're going to divide Jerusalem, and we're going to make a, another state besides Israel. Well, that's not what the Scriptures say. What does the Word of God have to say? Now, I want to give you another passage. I want you to listen to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 10, there are several passages that speak of the apple of God's eye. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy 2, he found him in a desert land and in a wasteland. He's speaking about the nation of Israel. A hollowing wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him. Listen to the, uh, to the phrase, the apple of his eye. So God has a special place for Israel. God has a special place for the Jews. God has a special place for Jerusalem. They belong to him. And you can come up with a concept, well, why did he pick the Jews? Well, you ask him when you get to heaven. But they're his chosen people, and yet in a whole, they've rejected the Messiah. And so I want to break down Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. God speaking of the nation of Israel. Jacob went in, we know that, with 70 strong. And after 400 plus years in bondage in Egypt land, they came out, and according to the statistics, about 2 million strong. And there's probably more when you include the, the men, the women, the children, and then you think about all the carts and, and all the animals and such. But first, God grew them in Egypt land, the wastelands of Egypt. We know that they did not live in Egypt directly, but about 25 miles outside, it was called the land of Goshen. And then God used Moses, his servant, to bring them out. 
But because of the hardness of their hearts, the nation of Israel, they spent 40 years in the wilderness of the desert. Those that understand the geographies, those that understand the numbers, they can take the land of Goshen to the Canaan land, which is the promised land. It's about an 11-day journey, radical when you think about that, with 2 million plus. You're talking about men, women, children. It's probably closer to 3 million. And then you're talking about, you know, uh, the carts and the animals, the herds and such. And so from the land of Goshen to the promised land, 11-day journey. But because of the hardness of their hearts and their disobedience to God, they meandered for 40 years in the wilderness over and over and over again. The book of Deuteronomy says that uh, their clothing never fell apart. Listen to this, ladies. Their shoes never wore out. Forty years in the wilderness. God supplied manna from heaven. God gave them water from a rock. When they wanted meat, he provided quail for them. He provided provisions constantly. And yet that first generation did not enter the promised land. But it was Joshua and Caleb and the next generation. Why? Because of the disobedience of their heart. Yet God calls them, listen, the apple of his eye. That is Israel. That is Israel today. It is Israel then. But it also represents you and I, the church, the body of Christ. Because according to Romans chapter 11, we have become the grafted in branch. We are part of the tree of Israel. We are the grafted in branch. We have a blessing in disguise, and a lot of people don't understand that. And so uh, the Gentiles have become also the apple of God's eye because we have accepted the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of introduction. Some of you were not here last week. At this time in the history of Israel, they have been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And the king finally decides that it's time for them to leave. The 70 years were prophesied, and it was complete now. And so the king gets a, a, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and he tells him to go back. And he takes 500 Jews with him. And they begin to uh, rebuild uh, the temple. And that's what the book of Haggai is. Haggai is right before Zechariah. And Haggai was all about building the temple. All about building the temple. And then when you come to Zechariah, he is also part of building the temple. But Zechariah was not concerned about the earthly things, the temple. And yet it was God's house. But Zechariah was concerned about the things in heaven. And I think sometimes, as Bill was mentioning, we're so concerned. I mean, I have a 401k. My wife has one. And, and I mean, you know, we have Social Security. How long? I don't know. But what happens if it's all taken away? We take things for granted. I do. You get up in the morning, turn the lights on. You get up in the morning, you turn on the water. As we mentioned last week, how many of you still use an outhouse? None of us. Come on. I never did. Our forefathers did. We're a blessed people. But I'm concerned about our United States of America. It seems that we're going backwards. We're forgetting God. And this is the nation of Israel. When they forget God, judgments came. And I believe strongly that's what the 70 
uh, seven years of tribulation is. And so here's Israel now going back after 70 years of captivity. Let me give you just a little bit of background on Zechariah. Zechariah has the, the clearest insight concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ, more than any other minor prophet combined. He prophesies both of the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. And I'm speaking about the second advent of Christ, the bodily return of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture of the church, that's seven years prior. But this is at the end of the seven years of tri tribulation. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. It's called Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. I believe God uses the seven years of tribulation to woo back the nation of Israel unto himself. Now, Jews and Gentiles will come to saving grace. But God is concerned about the apple of his eye. He hasn't given up on them. Oh, they've given up on him. But he has not given up on them, as well as he does not give up on us. Some of you maybe have been prodigal sons or prodigal daughters at one time or another, but the father is waiting, and he takes you back. And it's hard because we get this concept, well, God doesn't want me anymore. Oh, yes, he does. He died for you. He sent his only begotten son. Now, at this time in the history, the period of Zechariah had been a time of intense dealings, listen, of the Lord with his people Israel. And they were discouraged. They were demoralized. The task of rebuilding the temple of the Lord seemed more than uh, they could do on their own energies. Uh, we have a beautiful, quiet community here. We're all proud of Las Cruces, New Mexico. And just a couple of weeks ago, all the bomb threats and the bombs that did go off, uh, I mean, it, it woke us up. And all of a sudden, the ATF is sending uh, bomb-sniffing dogs and such, and everybody's concerned. We are concerned right now for Klein Park. What are we going to do? This is why uh, the guys in our fellowship here that are, you know, in law enforcement, we're gathering a group of guys for, for security. It's, it's needful. And we're going to ask the ATF to bring back the dogs and check out the, the park for us. I don't want nothing to happen. I know you don't. But that would be just like the enemy. But we have to continue. Now, if they were in 70 years in Babylon, in captivity, what did Jerusalem, what did Israel look like when they came back? Leave our town now. What we have, come back 70 years later. It would be disastrous. Unbelievable. This is what they were facing. But Haggai is concerned. The temple, the temple. God wants me to build a temple, and rightfully so. But then Zechariah comes in. Hey, I'm concerned about the temple, but I'm also concerned of the heavenly things. And so he ministers uh, to Israel. And it was then, and here we are 2,000 years plus later, and this hasn't taken place, but we're living in this time span right now, the 21st century. Now, as they exhausted themselves, they were like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do all this? Rebuild a temple after 70 years of captivity. Our United States of America fits right here. We're coming on to an election year. 
As we saw last week and the week before, you know, the stock's going up and down. China, up and down. What, what about, you know, we hear there's a Band-Aid on Greece right now. In fact, uh, I've, I've read some of the commentaries on what's going on. There's like 28 countries right now, and this is, you know, there might be more now that are on the verge of collapse financially. And could it be this is the method that God's going to use to get a hold of our United States of America? I mean, ever since I got out of high school, I've always worked. Some of you likewise. Even when I've had a layoff, I've usually gotten a job right away. But there are others out there. We have a tent city over here. We have it for a reason. These things happen. And so we're looking to 2016. we got to choose the right guy. Be it Democrat, be it independent, be it Republican. We got to choose the right person. Oh, we have to have the answers. We have to have somebody to get us out of this uh, economic disaster that's approaching. Well, listen, we shouldn't have our, I want you to vote. Please vote. I'm not going to tell you not to vote. I vote every year. I, ne I mean, every time there's voting, that is, we vote. It's your privilege. It's, it's your responsibility. Don't come and complain after, and then I ask, did you vote? Well, no, I didn't. Well, then why are you complaining? Well, my vote won't mean nothing. Well, you don't know unless you vote. But we're, it's not who's going to have the answers in, in 2016, be it a man or a woman. If we don't fix our eyes on God, judgments are going to come. Trust me, judgments are coming anyway. But I thank God for you, those of you that are here this morning, those of you listening uh, on live stream. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so this is what Zechariah is writing about uh, concerning the nation of Israel. God was not finished with them. Now turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12, which we studied last week. Some of you were not here. I want to read through it real quick. It's, it's only 14 verses. Uh, the coming deliverance of Judah. That's what it says on the caption of my Bible. It begins in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus saith the Lord who stretches out the heavens. He says, lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. God is the creator. He is in control. In verse 2, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. Uh, to all the surrounding uh, nations or peoples uh, that lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. I like the reference here to a, a, a drunkenness. Those that pry on people, those that steal, those that beat on people, uh, I mean, they look for easy targets. The elderly usually are easy targets. And so think about somebody that's in a drunken stupor. I can take advantage of them. That's the way they think. And so they see Israel, and they say, we can take advantage of them. But God's hand is upon the nation of Israel. Now, nations will try. Israel will be a heavy burden for them to defeat. Even though we see Jerusalem and Israel as a drunkenness. Notice in verse 3, and it shall happen, and I want you to remind yourself, those of you that were here last week, you know what we're talking about. This reference over and over, and it's going to be here in Zechariah 12. We're going to see it in Zechariah 13. In that day, 
Is there a specific day or is this a time frame? I don't think it's one day. I think it's speaking about the 70th week of Daniel. I believe it's speaking about Jacob's trouble. I believe it's speaking about the last seven years of history. The church has removed the church's harpazos. The Antichrist will come into his office. The Antichrist cannot come into his office until 2 Thessalonians is complete. That which hinders is the church. What is hindering that is in the church? The Holy Spirit. And once the harpazo takes place, and then all hell will begin to break loose. But in the beginning, the Antichrist is going to fool everybody. In that day, look at verse 4. In that day, saith the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and his rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the people with blindness. So speaking about military confronting. We know that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Israel will be victorious miraculously as those that surround her attack. That is ready even today. God will go before them spiritually, supernaturally, miraculously. He will defend them. He always has in previous battles. Look at verse 5. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts with their God. God will go before the leaders of Israel to make the right decisions on that day. Again, verse 6, the reference back. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan uh, in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding people, those on the right hand, those on the left hand, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. He is not finished with them. God's speed is given to the armies of Israel like a rushing fire in victory. We've been witnessing the last couple of weeks the fires up in the northern country of our states. Up above California. I mean, people are burning. People are frantic. I've gotten emails from people that we know and we love. Pray for us, Pastor Bob. Fires are right down the street. Fires are right over the hill. That's the kind of judgment that will come against these that come against Israel. But we're talking about a military strike. In verse 7, the Lord will, will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, again, verse 8, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble or the weakest link among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. We know historically, according to the Bible, that King David was a fierce warrior. He was a fighter. They sang about Saul's victories of thousands, and they saw, then they sang songs of David, uh, victories of his tens and thousands. David was a man of war. David was a man of bloody hands. He was not allowed uh, to build the temple. It was given to Solomon. And so they're going to be fighters like the days of King David. 
And again, in verse 9, the reference, and it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God will and has always protected Israel, the apple of God's eye. And yet in a whole, Israel has rejected uh, the Messiah. And last week, we spoke about the pierced one. Zechariah speaks about Christ. Interesting, it was still 500 years until crucifixion. And here it's prophesied that he would be crucified with the nail prints and such. The Persians are the ones that brought in crucifixion. Look at verse 10 now. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me, speaking of Christ, whom they pierce. He says, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one that grieves. When they finally see the pierced one, when they finally see that Jesus is the Messiah, Jews and Gentiles will come, I believe, to saving grace. Notice now, I like this. And they're going to grieve even more. How? In verse 11, in that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad, at Hadad, Rimnon, in the plain of Megiddo. Reference to King Josiah in 2 Kings chapters 22 through 24. The king was so loved and respected, and at his death they mourned bitterly. That's what's going to happen in the references that's speaking of here in Zechariah. Look at verse 12 now. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and again, the families of Levi in verse 13, and again, the wives and by themselves. And the, verse 13, the families of Shammai by themselves and their wives and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their own wives by themselves. Because they recognize the nail prints in his hand. They recognize the nail prints in his feet. We're going to study next week in Zechariah uh, chapter 14. Uh, the pierced one, which is Christ, will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. He will go through the gate beautiful. Even now it's, it's, it's closed off. And the Arabs have placed bodies as cemetery plots right there, like God can't go through there. How are you going to hold them back? It's sealed. It's been sealed over 500 years. Interesting when I see it, I go, man, I just, when I'm there, I'd say, I like to be here. Jesus, boom, I just want to see you go through it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? According to Revelation chapter 1, every eye shall see him. We'll get to that next week. Now, Zechariah, Chapter 13, because in our Bibles, we have chapters. But when the scroll of Zechariah would be open, they just kept reading. And so basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a book, and it just keeps going. And now we've created the chapters and such, which are good for us, and it allows us to study. But you, you're speaking about Zechariah chapter 12. It goes right into chapter 13. And in chapter 13, uh, the caption of my Bible says, Idolatry. Idolatry today, Pastor Bob? In Israel? 
Idolatry is cut off in Israel in the last days. Interesting. Now, please remember this. You've heard me teach it before. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. You use your own, your own concept. I know for a fact the things that kept me away from God years ago. I, I know for a fact I have to be very careful. I, I love baseball. I've always loved baseball. And we have our softball team, and I'm proud of them. They're good. They're, they're, you know, we go to every game, my wife and I. And here's an idol for me now, and I, I pick up on it. And just understand, I go to the ball game. I have to have a bag of peanuts. I go to the ball game. I have to have a soda or some kind of drink, or it's not a ball game. I'm watching what I eat, so I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't take any hot dogs. But I gotta have some peanuts, and I don't like them shelled. Let me shell them. That way, I feel like I'm at the ballpark. But what is an idol? Anything that takes the place of God. Now, some of you will understand this. Some of you won't. Back in the day. I did everything in my power to buy a 57 Chevy. Hard top. I didn't like that post in the middle. Had to have chrome rims. Had to have baby moons on. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That was my pride and joy. That was my idol. I didn't know. I loved it. And I bought it for $600. And I sold it for eight. I made a profit, right? Go on the internet today. I don't want to tell you how much they're worth. Unbelievable. But idols, are there still idols today in Israel? The answer is yes, or else this wouldn't be written. And so I want to read through the nine verses, and we're going to be making some commentary. And again, the reference that we go back to uh, Zechariah chapter 12, here in 13, verse 1, in that day again. A fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Sin will always bring in the devil. Sin will always bring in sorcery. Sin will always bring in the fallen angels. They're real. And I'll explain that as we continue. In verse 3, it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, that his father, his mother, who begot him, will say to him, you shall not live. Because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Now, you have to remember, this is a saved people now. They've come to the pierced one. They're born again of the Holy Spirit. It's the end of uh, what they know, the seven years of tribulation. In verse 4, And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair. Uh, to deceive, we'll explain that. But he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle uh, from my youth. They're trying to escape what they're doing. 
And one will say to him, what are these uh, wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, uh, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Is this a prophecy of Christ that we spoke of in Zechariah chapter 12? The pierced one. I believe it's Christ, but some say uh, that these are the false prophets that were wounded for their lives. I don't know. But notice now, the shepherd's savior, these last few verses in verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Saith the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then I will turn my hand against the little ones. They're going to come against the disciples. Once Christ is crucified, we know that. Zechariah is prophesying it. Those are the little ones. And it shall come to pass in the land, as saith the Lord, that two-thirds, mark this down, two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, speaks of tremendous trials, that will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. This is the nation of Israel at the conclusion of the seven years of tribulation. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Interesting. We shared this last week. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. There are those that say replacement theology has come in. The Gentiles have replaced Israel. Not so. Zechariah would not prophesy this if he was. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. God is going to restore the nation of Israel. God is going to save the nation of Israel. But it's not without pain. Now, those of you that understand the math, and, uh, you know, I have to inquire from some of the guys, but I understand six billion. I'm just going to use the reference. And if two-thirds is wiped out, it only leaves two billion. That's great carnage. Now, we know the rapture of the church has taken place. We know many will come to saving grace. We know in the book of Revelation, those that died martyr's death were going to be underneath the altar, the souls of those. But still, when you take two-thirds of the world, it's incredible. It's just unbelievable. Now, he has to remove the idols in Israel today. Now, let me give you some statistics here. Remember, an idol is anything that takes the place of God. Israel has oil. Israel has natural gas. Israel is known for their sciences and their technology. We know that Israel has military intelligence. In fact, we use them. We also know that Israel has military power. These are gifts that God's given to them. I mean, they have minds that are incredible. And yet they're hated so much. Agriculture, they're the best. And when you think about tourism, I'm amazed when we go there. 
Very seldom it's empty. Only when rockets and bombs and such are coming in. And we've been there when we've heard the shooting. And I like our guides. They don't worry about it. And basically, I try not to worry about it either. We're there to see the land. And so what is God speaking about in the last days? In Zechariah 13, we're going to make commentary. Let me say a quick prayer. Father, give us insight as we look at these nine verses. Speak to our hearts in clarity, Lord. We know these things still have not happened, but they're prophesied, and they will take place in Jesus' name. And so Zechariah chapter 13, idolatry is going to be cut off in Israel in the last days. Look at verse 1 now. In that day, they've come to saving grace. A fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, we just read in Zechariah chapter 12, uh, they mourned, they wept, and they come to salvation at the end of the tribulation. They see the nail prints. They understand the pierced one. They know now that it's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so salvation comes. There has to be purification. There has to be a cleansing. There has to be a washing. It speaks about a fountain. We know that it's the blood of Christ that washes us and cleanses us afresh and anew. Now notice as we continue here. In that day, in that day, ends with Israel's return to God. For years, they rejected the pierced one. Now they have embraced the pierced one, which we know and they know now as the Messiah. They now enjoy, listen to this, a fountain that brings cleansing for sin and uncleanness. There has to be true repentance. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. He brought it to you. He's brought it to me. Maybe you're not saved here this morning, and I hope and pray conviction comes. True repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. But it does not come unless there's a conviction. And I confess who Christ is. Salvation comes in. I receive Christ. God cleanses and washes me with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know this story, some of you don't, but I want you to mark down if you're taking notes. In John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we know that Jesus went out of his way to Samaria to meet the woman at the well, Jacob's well. She had already been previously married, and now the last guy she's with, she's not even married. She's living with him. She's had five men. Now, the Jews would come and gather their water at a certain time. Then the Samaritans would come and gather their water another time. And a woman like the Samaritan woman, a loose woman, a worldly woman, she would come at a specific time also. And I want you to think how long she would go. Uh, you know, was it, was it a two-block walk? Was it a mile? I don't know. But she would go get her water for the day. And this day when she showed up, Jesus is there. And she knows he's a Jew. She could tell the way he's dressed. And, and she was a Samaritan. And, and listen, and the reference to the fountain now. And it, 
excuse me, John chapter 4, verse 14. I'm sorry. Jesus and the Samaritan. Listen to verse 14. Whosoever, he tells her, whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water. Listen to the terminology springing up into everlasting life. In other words, salvation has come. In other words, the conviction has stuck. They've come to the Lord. It's taken seven years of tribulation. I hope and pray this morning, conviction has come your way in time past. Maybe it's here this morning. I don't know. But you need to come to saving grace. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Go back and study. When you read John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus asked that same question, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? In verse 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In verse 7, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He was a ruler of the Jews. And what did he respond? How can I go back in to my mother's womb? That which is physical is physical. That which is fleshly is fleshly. But that which is spiritual is spiritual. And the born-again experience is spiritual. It's spiritual. Something happens. Transformation. Metamorphosis. Change. Listen to this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, therefore, if a man, if a woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There has to be a change. Jesus said, you will know them, my people, by their fruit. He's speaking about the church. You will know them by their fruit. The fruit of the Spirit starts with love. Something happens. It changes you. Now, don't tell me you're born again of the Holy Spirit. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Don't tell me you're going to go to heaven and you're still fornicating. You're still committing adultery. You're still living together. You're still doing drugs. You're still stealing. And name the sin. The Bible says a liar will not get into the kingdom of God. The Bible says, and this is what hit me years ago, a drunkard will not enter the kingdom of God. There has to be change. There has to be transformation. There has to be metamorphosis. You're that slug that winds himself into a cocoon. And then the board again experience comes and you're that beautiful butterfly that comes out. Oh, you're not perfect by any means. But you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. This happened to Nicodemus. This has happened to a lot of you here. And this happened to the woman at the well. This fountain that just kept coming. The blood of Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon, a great theologian, of the 1800s, according to verse 1. This provision is inexhaustible. There is a fountain open, not a cistern, not a reservoir, which are closed, but a fountain. A fountain continues still to bubble up, and it is full after 50 years as it was the first day. Now we understand some will dry up, but he's talking about this fountain of life. Even so, the provision and the mercy of God for the forgiveness and the justification of our souls continually flows and overflows. 
listen to me. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do this over and over and over again. Now, I come to the born-again experience. I am born again to the Holy Spirit. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creature. Change is taking place, but I'm still a sinful man. You're still a sinful man or sinful woman. And we have an advocate, a lawyer for our defense. It's Christ Jesus. The enemy constantly uh, is chiming in on you, threatening you, accusing you. In the book of Revelation, he is the accuser of the brethren. But I'm covered in the blood of the Lamb. I sin, you sin, and he washes me daily. I don't have to be born again every day, but he washes me daily. Now the nation of Israel has come to saving grace. This is why those idols have to be removed now. This is why those that were false prophets and false prophecy have to go. Let's continue here. Look at verse 2. And it shall be that reference again in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. Idolatry. False prophets. False prophecies were sins that led Israel astray from God. God will provide the blood of Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 1, a fountain to wash over them. He also promises to cut off the sources of uncleanness, which are idolatry, the false prophets, and the false prophecies. And again, church, anything that takes the place of God becomes my idol. When you see today Israel and you visit the holy uh, city, you go to Israel today, the holy sites, we travel and cover everything. You see idolatry. I still alive today and still working in the holy land. It's hard to conceive. You mean Israel has idols? Yes, in different forms that we don't understand. God promises to cleanse the land from such idolatry completely. Listen, when you go to Israel today, there are two churches. They both claim it's a nativity. They both claim this is where Christ was born. He has to be born. Mary went to one place, a cave, the Bible says. She had her child. But you have a church over here, and it's a cathedral. And you have another church over here, it's another cathedral. Which one is right? We don't go to those churches. We go to the sites. We go to the sites. When we go to Bethlehem, uh, they took us into the caves. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to go to Bethlehem. It uh, depends on uh, what the temperature is going on. But you go to the caves and you, you recognize. And they, they'll tell you they don't know which cave. But Jesus was born in this area. Idols in the sites of Israel. Listen, here's another one. We go to the Jordan and we get baptized. We go to the Jordan, and, and I do baptisms with the other pastors that are there. And those of you that have gone, even if you've been baptized before, I mean, to be in Israel, to be in Jerusalem, uh, not Jerusalem, but the Jordan, you want to get baptized, naturally. They give you a little certificate. It's fun. It's great. And I enjoy going there. Now, they, they, they want you to get these white robes. Well, I don't, they're too combining for me. And so I wear my shorts, and I wear my T-shirt, Calvary Chapel, and I go in, they don't say nothing, but they want me to buy the 
material. And so we do the baptisms. And even there, we go to that site. It's beautiful. But last time we went, they took us to another site after. There's another place that they say, no, this is where John the Baptist was baptizing. This is where John baptized Jesus. So now you go and you go, well, which one do I go to? I want to see the church where they built that Jesus was born. Which one do I go to? Be careful with idols. Now, one more. When you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you go to the top, and it depends what the temperature of the people at the time, the frictions, if we go up or we don't go up. I mean, we have to leave our Bibles behind. If we have any kind of a metal cross, they want you to take it off. They, the Muslims don't want it up there. Well, when you get to the top and when you see pictures of Jerusalem, what do you notice? The Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's an idol. And talk about false prophets, Muhammad. Inside is a stone where two footprints are that he went into heaven. Now, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, not Muhammad. They say he's one of the many prophets. Interesting, when they see the pierced one, salvation will come to the Jew and Gentile. And right now, I'm reading a book. It's called Killing Christians by Tom Doyle. He was a pastor at Calvary Chapel up in Colorado. He spoke at our conference for pastors. And I finally got a hold of the book. I'm reading it right now. I'm halfway through. Church, right now, we know it. We're reading it. We're, we're, we're seeing the news, and we're getting tidbits. There's atrocities going on in third world countries. People are dying, Christian people like you and I. And, and I'm just blown away. They will not give up their faith. They will not denounce Christ. Same thing happened in the time of Rome. Deny Christ, say Caesar is, is Lord. And they wouldn't. And so, church, God gives you the strength. God gives you the power. God gives you the ability. Beheadings. Women are raped. Crucifixions. Children burned to death. I, I mean, the list goes on and on. They're going to come to saving grace. Many of them are coming. God is giving visions to Muslims. It's incredible what's going on. Look at verse 3 now. And it shall come to pass that if anyone will still prophesy, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Now, you have to understand, they've come to saving grace. I mean, there's a revival in Israel. A third of the nation is left. A third of the people. Gentiles, I believe, are coming to saving grace too. But I want you to study Deuteronomy chapter 18. The law said if there was a false prophet, if it didn't come to pass, you were to take them outside and stone them. And then the law said, listen to this, mom and dad, if your son is a false prophet, you got to turn him in or thrust him through. Radical statement. Zechariah says, a day is coming when public opinion will not tolerate 
false prophets. There will be such a commitment to the Lord and his word, even the family of a false prophet will condemn the false prophet death. In other words, the power of God will be greater, and I know some of you don't understand this, the power of God in one's life will be greater than your family. I want all my family to come to saving grace, but I understand not all of them. They think Mary and I are still crazy. They respect us, but not everybody comes to saving grace. Our place is to let them see Christ in us. Our place is to share the gospel when the opportunity arises. I don't just blurt it out to them, but they'll ask questions. They'll email, they'll call, or I bury somebody in Southern Cal, and they come, and they will hear the gospel message. I think it's important for us to bring it forth. Not only the false prophets, but it gives us their dress. Look at verse 4. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesied. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair uh, to deceive. In other words, they were. <laughs> false prophets in, in the Old Testament, and it seems like false prophets in the last days, they're going to dress like Elijah. They're going to put on animal skins. Uh, we saw that in 2 Kings chapter 1. They're going to dress like John the Baptist. I wonder if they eat locusts and honey also. Those who posed as prophets will so fear exposure that they will deny ever having made such a claim. They will put away the uniform, one of my commentaries said, uh, of a false prophet, uh, putting away the false, you know, the coarse hair and all that. A robe of coarse, coarse hair of an animal, camel, or a goat. The dress of the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting I didn't come to St. Grace, my wife and I, until the end of the 70s. But back in the early 70s, back in Southern California, I know some of you think all the nuts are from California. There was a prophet, listen to this. He was called the Sackcloth Prophet. Is an actual guy. And people were going to them. You see, the, the Jesus movement was so powerful. People were coming to Saving Grace, but then people get excited, and they go, let's go see the sackcloth prophet. You know what a sackcloth is, right? It's a burlap sap. Right now, it's chili season. Go buy about five chili sacks and then tear them apart and make yourself a nice robe. That's what he was wearing, and people would go. I don't know whatever happened to him, but I can't, I'm wondering, I hope, he didn't wear no clothing underneath, because that thing has to itch. Ooh. I'm sure he had long johns. I don't know. But notice what's taking place here. In verse 5, but he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. For a man taught me to keep the cattle from my youth. Notice their defense in that day. They will lie to save their own life. Those who took the mark of the beast have to be some of these. Revelation chapter 13. Because if you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to prophesy falsely. You're not going to wear the garb of a prophet. But there's going to be those at this time. Deception is one of the lies of Satan, of Lucifer himself. Notice now in verse 6. And one will say to him, 
Remember, in Zechariah chapter 12, spoke of the pierced one, which I believe is Christ. Is this Christ here, or are they speaking about the false prophets at that time? I'll leave it in your discretion. And one will say to him, what are those wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, I believe it's Christ, but there are those that say no because of what is going to continue in the scriptures. But let me give you the amplified version here of verse 6. They shall say to him, what are those wounds on your chest or between your hands? Then he will answer, uh, those with which I was wounded. And then the Amplify puts in parentheses, discipline in the house of my friend. Is this Christ? Or is this the false prophets at the time? I don't know. I want to believe that it's Christ because notice the next ensuing verses. The caption of my Bible above verse 7, the shepherd savior. Speaking of Christ, look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, saith the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. The disciples are the little ones. Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he quotes this. I want you to turn there with me. Go to Matthew chapter 26. And look at verse 26 with me. So I believe that it is Christ that they're talking about, not the false shepherds. But again, it's not theology. It's not dogma. And so we're going to leave it at that. But Matthew 26, look at verse 26. The caption of my Bible says, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. This is the communion service. As you've been here, when we have communion, we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I like that little phrase, because I spend more time in prayer. But notice verse 26, chapter 26 of Matthew. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. And we know in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, do this in remembrance of me. In verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of, the, of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you at my Father's kingdom. I believe that's speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 30 and 31, and when they had sung a hymn, uh, they went out of the Mount of Olives. In verse 31, and Jesus said to them, here's the quotation of Zechariah 13, 7. Jesus said to them, all of you will be made a stumbling, made to stumble, that is, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. What happened after the, the supper? The Last Supper of Christ, the communion service, the institution, what happened after? We know that Jesus was taken by over 200 men. They came with lanterns, they came with swords, they came with staves. And they took him, one man, they had to have 200 plus. 
And Jesus was taken. And, and the disciples scattered. They were fearful. Peter, remember, took out a sword, tries to cut off. Uh, he went for a headshot, I believe, and he hit an ear. That's how bad Peter was <laughs> in aim. And Jesus picks it up, puts it back on. But then they scattered, and they were fearful. And now we come to the last portion. And I want you to really pay attention to the numbers. They're radical. Radical, that's all I can tell you. And I want you to think of nuclear capabilities in our world today. This can easily happen. In verse 8, And it shall come to pass in all the land, saith the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off, and not just cut off, and die. But one-third shall be left in it. So two-thirds of a hundred is 66 approximately. Out of each 100, they're going to die. Having but 33 left out of 100. Listen to Pastor Chuck, his commentary on verse 8. I love it. During the time of the Great Tribulation, the population of the world will be almost decimated. According to Revelation chapter 6, it teaches that a third of the earth's population will be destroyed by plagues and come from, it's going to come from the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then further judgments continue in Revelation chapter 19. Another third of the world will be destroyed, and then a third will remain. This is Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's the 70th week of Daniel, according to Daniel chapter 9. I mean, some radical things. I, I, don't, I don't know how many people are going to die, but these numbers are staggering, are staggering. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 12 and 13. Here's interesting. Ezekiel 36 and 37 are complete. They're in the books. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are pending. They're ripe. It could happen at any time. This is the burial of Gog, the battle that ensued there. In Ezekiel 39, verse 12, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying their dead. In order to cleanse the land, verse 13, indeed all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown uh, for it on that day that I am glorified, saith the Lord. That's just this battle. Nuclear capabilities could wipe everything else out, evaporate people. We know the concept. But listen, salvation is going to come to the third that is left. According to verse 9, I will bring a third through the fire. Speaks of trials. He says, I will bring them through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Uh, this is the refiner's fire. It, it has to remove the dross, the impurities, and that impurities are the sin nature. Notice what Jesus says about the apple of his eye. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Takes a long time to do that, church. Took seven years of tribulation. Took 2,000 years. 
since the Messiah. I praise God for you guys this morning that uh, are born again of the Holy Spirit. I also praise God for those of you that are still haven't come to saving grace, but the seed is planted and somebody waters and eventually you're going to come uh, to saving grace. The Bible says today is a day of your salvation. The suggestion here that only a third of the Jewish people will survive the great tribulation. If this is the case, no wonder these years are called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and why Jesus said the great tribulation will be the most horrific time in church history. Study Revelation chapter 24, especially verse 21. But I like this phrase in verse 9. They will call on my name and I will answer them. This prophetically refers to the Jewish people who survived the great tribulation, come to salvation in the second half of the final period. They welcome Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This group has to include the 144,000 that are mentioned in Revelation 7, Revelation chapter 14. These will make up the restored of Israel as Jesus establishes a millennial reign, that is the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, a lot of these numbers I just don't get. I don't understand. The church, according to the scriptures, there's going to be carnage. Carnage like never before. I'm going to take you back, give you some statistics real quick. August the 6th, 1945, Hiroshima, estimated of 140,000 died. Many were evaporated. Five years later, 60,000 more died because of the results. Just a few days later, August the 9th, 1945, Nagasaki, estimates of 70,000 died. Again, many were evaporated. Silhouettes on stones. Listen to this, five years later, after Nagasaki, 140,000 died as a result. Will this happen again? Greater destruction we're capable of. If you go on the net, you can see the numbers. This is 2013, the quotes here. Russia has 8,500 nukes. The U.S. has 7,700 nukes. France only has 300 nukes, China has 250, England has 225, Israel has 80, Pakistan has 120, India has 110. I like this one. North Korea only has 10. But that is the craziest one of the whole bunch. That guy's a nut. You know what's going to happen? Press a button here, press a button there, press one here, press one here. Carnage, church. Carnage is going to take place. I'm not here this morning to scare you. I'm here to inform you. I'm here to teach you. And I'm going to beg you by the mercies of God, if you have not given your life to Christ, today is the day of your salvation. If you're in some type of sin, you need to change. You need to repent. True repentance, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. You're going this way in sin. You got to go about face. 
you got to go about faith.